Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. The views expressed in the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Mr. Fred Bork, Professor of Legal History and Leadership at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School and the Regimental Historian Archivist for the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps. Mr. Bork and I discussed Judge Advocates in the Great War, covering the pre-World War I JAG Corps, its expansion after the U.S. entered the war, Judge Advocate training, and the duties Judge Advocates performed during the war. We join the episode, already in progress. Good afternoon, Mr. Bork, and thank you for joining us today. We're talking about JAGs in the Great War, World War I. Can you tell us what the JAG Corps looked like prior to World War I? So in 1916, there were a total of 17 Army lawyers in the JAG department, as our Corps was then called. So compared to the more than, say, 1,800 active-duty judge advocates we have today, the department was really small. The other big difference is that there were no enlisted personnel in the JAG department, uh, no paralegals. We had civilian employees who were working as legal clerks, and there were also no legal administrators in uh, the JAG department. So you just had judge advocates, just had attorneys. And all that changed, obviously, with the start of World War One. And where were these judge advocates stationed? So most of the 17 were in Washington, D.C., at the War Department with uh, the Judge Advocate General. And you have a judge advocate uh, or a few of them out in the Philippines, which is where many of our soldiers were stationed in that era, since the Philippines is still part of the U.S. at this time. And... Uh, also a judge advocate in China with the troops that we had stationed there. But almost everyone is in Washington, D.C. in the War Department. And how did the size of the JAG Department change as we became involved in World War I? So as most of your listeners will remember, World War I started in 1914, and the U.S. doesn't enter until April 1917. And it's a huge expansion. There had been 125,000 soldiers in the regular army before the war and about 67,000 National Guardsmen who had been mobilized and were on the border with Mexico because you'll remember there is a revolution in Mexico. Pancho Villa has crossed the border. General uh, Pershing leads a punitive expedition. But that's it. But by 1918, we've had a draft. Uh, Some 4 million American men have been inducted into the Army, and there are about 2 million just in France. So it's a huge uh, change in the big Army, moving away from this very small constabulary type of uh, force to the modern Army that we're used to today. And with the expansion of the big Army, meant a corresponding expansion in a need for judge advocates. And there are about 425 active-duty judge advocates by the end of World War I. Was the expansion incremental? Did they start off with 425 personnel 
or do they add as the war progressed? Well, I think that probably no one really knew in 1917 how many lawyers we really needed. So, yes, the answer to your question is, initially, the JAG department said, well, we need 25 really, really good lawyers. And so the first thing that happens is is the JAG, the JAG department, the Judge Advocate General, and this time it's Major General Crowder, Crowder goes out and really solicits 25 of some of the most prominent uh, lawyers in America to join the JAG department. And at this time, the lowest-ranking judge advocate is a major. And so these 25 are all offered commissions as majors, now in the Army Reserve, but nonetheless, very prominent lawyers like Felix Frankfurter, who will later serve on the Supreme Court. Some of these lawyers are very famous or well-known law professors, uh, like Wigmore, whose Wigmore on evidence is still familiar to lawyers in law school. So initially, it's pretty small. We, we select 25. But I think as the Army expands, the JAG department realized that we had to have a lot more. And so they begin to ask lawyers to apply for commissions. Congress passes legislation permitting judge advocates to be lieutenants and captains in the JAG department. And so that's how we begin to to fill our ranks. Uh, Lots of people applying, lots of lawyers who wanted to serve in the Army. And can you give us some examples of what kind of duties these attorneys did? Yes. So if you're talking about being stateside, the big thing that's going on in Washington, D.C. at the War Department, and judge advocates are very involved in this, is the Selective Service Act. So General Crowder, who had been and who was the Judge Advocate General, uh, Crowder is so highly thought of that the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, asks Crowder to take a leave of absence from his job as TJAG to take charge of the Selective Service Act, this draft, as the Provost Marshal General. So we had had a draft back in the Civil War But there had been no draft since that time. The Army had been all volunteer. So this is a really, really big deal because if the Army is going to expand and have this huge American expeditionary forces in France, we're not going to be able to do it with volunteers. And so many judge advocates were helping General Crowder run the Selective Service Act, the draft, in Washington, D.C., Judge advocates out in the field are advising commanders at camps, mostly training camps, where uh, divisions are being put together and organized to deploy to France and join General Pershing's American Expeditionary Forces. A division back in this period is quite different from what a division is today in the sense that a division in World War I in the American Army is 28,000 men, which I'm pretty sure is double the size of a division today. So you have a judge advocate or even two judge advocates for every single one of these divisions that's being organized. And 
soldiers get in trouble. Uh, if I'm at a training camp at uh, Camp Meade, Maryland, there's always some soldier who says, hey, I'm going home for the weekend or I'm going to take a long pass. Soldier doesn't get back on time. You've got an AWOL. Uh, what do we do? Well, we court-martial AWOLs, drunken, disorderly, all the sort of criminal offenses that you would see at an AIT or basic training unit today. Judge advocates are involved in that in the U.S. So you just talked about how soldier misconduct was handled in the United States, but how was it handled in France and England? So this is the first time in American military history that U.S. troops are stationed in foreign countries for an extended period. Today, we're very used to that. And in fact, wherever we are, we try to negotiate a status of forces agreement. But there was no such thing as a status of forces agreement or a SOFA back in World War I. So the first thing that comes up when your troops are in England or your troops are in France is that, well, of course, we can court-martial them, but to what extent are these American soldiers subject to French criminal law or to British criminal law? So one of the first things that judge advocates had to work out was it's a conflict of laws question. And what happened in England was the judge advocate who was there actually negotiated an agreement with the British. He actually drafted legislation that ultimately was enacted by the parliament in which it was very clear that courts martial, American military justice, had primary jurisdiction over all misconduct uh, committed by soldiers in the UK. Now in France, it was slightly different. They probably certainly could have negotiated a formal agreement that the French could have enacted in their legislature, but that isn't how it worked. In fact, they had sort of informal diplomatic notes. The French were quite happy to let the American army handle all the misconduct because the French saw that the Articles of War creating courts martial actually worked effectively, and they also saw that General Pershing, the commanding general of the American Expeditionary Forces, was very serious about dealing with American soldier misconduct. Sir, can you tell us about some of the other legal issues that Jags wrestled with? Well, sure. And you need to remember that although our bread and butter today is, is not military justice, it's still really important. But today we try fewer than 500 cases a year at general courts martial and special courts martial. Not so back in World War One. In fact, in 1917, the Army tried 6,200 courts martial, and in 1918, 20,000 courts martial. This is also a period, though, that lawyers are not running the court martial system. It's all being run by line officers. So there's lots of courts martial in France, and lawyers are really there to advise commanders on what should or should not be 
courts martial, a court martial. Um, but there are all sorts of legal issues that are going on as well. So if I have two million soldiers in France, they've got to eat, and they've got to have some place to sleep. And this is an army of horses, and horses have to have forage, uh, and there has to be potable water. And this is also an army that relies on railroads. So we shipped over railroad cars, and uh, we built track, and we needed roundhouses for railroad cars. Well, for all that, you have to have contracts. And you have to have somebody who not only understands contract law, but negotiates a contract, understands fiscal law. So there were many judge advocates who were involved in contract and fiscal law. A very interesting aspect of this, at the end of the war, and the war ends quite suddenly in November of 1918, the American army suddenly discovered that no one had thought to put a termination clause in any of the contracts. There was no T for C. There was no termination for the convenience of the government. So all of a sudden, these contracts that had been negotiated for a year, say in the summer of 1918, to provide food or forage for a year, well, you go to the French and you say, well, the war's over. I don't need this anymore. And the answer is, too bad. You've got a contract. And we didn't, we didn't think about in those days that we needed a termination for the convenience of the government clause. So one of the things that judge advocates are very, very busy in at the end of the war is paying lots of claims for breaching these contracts, contract damage. Very, very interesting. Did judge advocates do things like pay claims brought by the civilian population for damages done by American personnel? Yes. Just as we pay claims today where we take someone's property or we damage it, immediately uh, there were claims being paid by judge advocates. And in fact, judge advocates in World War I took the same position that judge advocates take today, which is this is a Paying these claims is really important. It build, builds goodwill with the population, and we ought to be liberal about permitting these claims. So, in fact, on a number of occasions, the French authorities would say, well, you don't need to pay this claim because it's actually the result of combat damage, and as a general rule, claims aren't paid for property, private property damaged in combat. But the American position usually was, well, we're going we're gonna to pay for it anyway unless it's actually in combat. So, yes, lots of claims were being paid, and we were pretty liberal with that. The other thing that's really important in this era, another thing that judge advocates are heavily involved in, is this is really the beginning of the legal assistance program. And the reason for that is, for the first time, Congress has enacted the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act. Now, today it's still around, and it's called the Service Members Civil Relief Act, but it's World War I that sees the beginning of this act that basically gives soldiers the right to delay civil suits against them, landlord-tenant disputes, all of which was necessary because so many Americans are overseas. And if my landlord in Pittsburgh, for example, 
is suing me for some sort of breach of my tenancy agreement, but I'm stationed in Paris, I got to have some relief. And so this new act is out there. Judge advocates are very involved with that. The other thing that's important to talk about is that there's no operational law in the sense of an institutional recognition that uh, judge advocates should use the law to enhance operational success. There's no concept of the soldier lawyer that we have today. But there always were judge advocates, particularly those with military experience, who went to commanders and said, look, I know you're short commanders to take charge of battalions or regiments, and I can do it. Or you need a liaison officer, uh, I can do it. It's a non-legal job, but there were always some judge advocates out there who looked for ways to use their abilities as officers to enhance mission success. Very, very famous one is Blanton Winship. Winship is a colonel in the uh, JAG Corps in World War I. He's over in France. General Pershing needs regimental commanders, a regiment being similar to a brigade. And uh, Blanton Winship takes command of two regiments at the same time, leads them into combat, and for that is decorated for extraordinary heroism with the Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, Winship later serves as the TJ from 1931 to 1933. Uh, there's another lawyer by the name of Leslie Kincaid, and Kincaid is another one of these guys who really says, I can do something more for the commander, and so he also leads troops into combat and is decorated with the Distinguished Service Cross. So we tend to think today, well, operational law is a new thing. It didn't really come around till the 80s, and that's true. But there were always lawyers back in the day in World War I who looked for other ways to help commanders. Mr. Bork, did we see any social change in the JAG department as we entered into World War I? Well, the answer is yes. As you know, this is a, a Jim Crow America with lots of institutional racism, and the Army has been very rigidly segregated along racial lines. There had been no African-American lawyers in the JAG Corps, but in World War I, that's a big change because the Army creates an all-African-American, all-black division, the 92nd. Most of the officers are white. But General Pershing appoints Adam Patterson, a very prominent attorney in the black community out of Chicago, to be the judge advocate for the 82nd uh, Division. And this is 92nd Division. And not only is this significant because Patterson is black, but he's also given a field grade rank. He's a major, which sets him apart because there are very, very few African-American field grade officers in this army. So Patterson is the division judge advocate for the 92nd. He serves in France with the division with great distinction, and he has an assistant by the name of uh, Thomas Walden, who's a captain. Walden is a black attorney from Georgia, and he, so it's two of them. 
So two African-American lawyers in the division. Lots of courts martial. Patterson, uh, very courageous in defending soldiers from charges of cowardice. And there were some black soldiers who were convicted, but the convictions were set aside because Patterson went to the convening authority on their behalf. But this is a big change. Patterson, I should say, was very, very active in Chicago politics, and we know that he actually worked with the very famous lawyer Clarence Darrow in defending some cases. Uh, After the war, uh, Patterson went back to Chicago, continued to be involved in Democratic uh, Party politics in the city. But that's a big social change. No women. We're not going to have women in the JAG department until World War II. Now, I should say that at the end of the war, these two black officers are discharged, and there are no more African-American attorneys in the Corps, but it's a door that's been opened, and in the future, African-American attorneys will return and be part of the JAG department. Mr. Bork, how were lawyers educated and trained? You know, this is a a really interesting issue because today we have a Judge Advocate General's Legal Center in school, and we run a basic course, and we run a graduate course. But back in 1917, there was no school for lawyers. And in fact, most branches did not have a school. Infantry branch, for example, didn't create an infantry school until 1918. So this is a real problem, because if you're the judge advocate general and you've got 425 lawyers you're bringing in, how do you educate and train them on military law? How do you know that they're interpreting a regulation correctly? How do you know that they're uh, practicing law in a uniform way? And the answer is that we really didn't have any education or training. We obviously had a manual for courts-martial. Most of what you're doing is courts-martial. So you said to every single new lawyer, read the manual for courts-martial, and that's probably your training packet. There also was a digest of opinions of the Judge Advocate General. Every year, the TJAG would publish opinions that had been issued by the department But those are pretty much your only resources. So it's very dependent then on the abilities of the individual uh, judge advocate in delivering legal services. And so there really isn't any education or training. We obviously correct that in World War II when we open up the Judge Advocate General School at the University of Michigan. But back in this period, there really is no education and training. And let me leave you with one other thought. Communication is really difficult. Even in France, because the war is going on, telephones don't work, mail service is spotty, maybe a telegram can be sent. But even in France, you're pretty much on your own if you're a judge advocate out at the division. And communication with Washington, D.C., you got to wait for a letter. So really, unlike today where we've got phenomenal reach back, if I'm out in the field in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, I can reach back to my higher headquarters, to the Pentagon, to get guidance or advice. But in this period, 
you were really on your own. We even had lawyers in Siberia and North Russia. So you can imagine what sort of support they had. Not much. You're on your own. You didn't have a book? Too bad. So I think it's very interesting how successful the JAG department was in being able to deliver services uh, despite all these obstacles. And I think it's, a, it's simply a reflection of how really good these lawyers were. Mr. Bork, we're at the end of the episode, and we like to get book recommendations from our guests. Do you have any recommendations for us? All right. If you want to know more about uh, judge advocates in the Great War, then you should uh, look at a really good book by Joshua Kassenberg, K-A-S-T-E-N-B-E-R-G. Josh Kassenberg is a retired Air Force judge advocate. And he now teaches at the University of New Mexico's law school. And he's written a book called To Raise and Discipline an Army. And that's a comprehensive history of military law in World War I. Very well done and worth looking at. We also in the JAG Corps are about to publish a book called Judge Advocates in the Great War. It is... uh, not as comprehensive as what Josh uh, Kassenberg has put together, uh, but the difference is that our book, and it should be out in the springtime, our book has biographical sketches of every single judge advocate who served in World War I. I think it's going to be a unique contribution to our history because I don't believe that there's any other branch in the Army that would be able to identify everybody who served in that branch in World War I. But we've been able to put together biographical sketches, and that should be out and available for everyone probably in the spring of 2021. One other book I'm going to recommend has nothing to do with the law, It's a brand new book, just came out. It's been nominated for the Mann Booker Prize, which is the British equivalent of the Pulitzer, and it's called The New Wilderness. The New Wilderness by Diane Cook. It's a dystopian future of an America where uh, cities are so overcrowded and so polluted and so unhealthy that some people are sent out into a wilderness to see if they can survive. It's excellent. I just finished it. I'd highly recommend it. And now I know you're going to ask me about movies. So let me give you two World War I movies. The first one is uh, Peter Jackson's uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, uh, which some of you may have seen. It's uh, Peter Jackson, who's a very famous uh, Australian director. I think he did the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm almost positive, which won some Oscars some years ago. Anyway, Peter Jackson has gone back and gotten World War One, actual World War One, black and white movies, and he's colorized them. Uh, they Shall Not Grow Old. I'm sure it's available on Netflix, would be my guess. The other movie you want to look at is 1917, by Sam uh, Mendez, or Sam Mendez, I think, is the director. 
the storyline is that two British soldiers are giving this, given this impossible mission to cross into enemy territory and warn a unit not to conduct an attack because uh, the Germans are waiting in ambush. It's an excellent movie. Uh, 1917 is the name. Mr. Bork, thanks for talking to us this afternoon. You're most welcome. My pleasure. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JagFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.